Heavenly Father, we thank you that you do speak to us. Uh, we pray for understanding now as we open up the scriptures together. Uh, please help us to understand it, not just so that we know something about history, but so that we have more confidence in you being the one who keeps your promises and therefore gives us hope for the future. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, well, I'm a bit of a, a sporting tragic. Uh, that is, I'm pretty tragic at sport. Uh, I enjoy watching it and always have done, have enjoyed playing it in the past. And I've been involved over a couple of decades in ministry in the world of sport. Uh, for about five years, I was a chaplain at the Australian Institute of Sport in Canberra. And then for 17 years after that, a chaplain to the uh, Brumbies Rugby Union. But it was in the lead up to the Sydney Olympics that I was particularly involved uh, at the AIS, uh, some work with uh, the, the soccer team, some work with the volleyball teams, with the archery team, with a number of the Paralympians and so on. And so I watched the Sydney Olympics with a lot more personal kind of investment in what was happening. And for those of you who are old enough to remember uh, the Sydney Olympics, there was a great deal of build up to this event. Uh, it was the first time since 1956 that we'd had the Olympics on our shores. And Australia had invested an awful lot in many different sports. There were 22 different sports at the AIS, hoping that we were going to get a hoard of medals. And probably, or arguably, one of the greatest hopes for a medal at the Olympics was Cathy Freeman. And some of you will remember this event. Um, were any of you actually there in the stadium to see Cathy Freeman win the gold medal? Yes, there are a couple of you here. Uh, an extraordinary event. I would imagine that you've both got goosebumps at the moment just thinking about it. Uh, the fervour and the excitement of winning a gold medal at her own Olympics was absolutely euphoric. Um, fast forward three days and there was another event that in so many ways was just as emotional for absolutely the opposite reasons. Who knows this woman? Jane Seville. Uh, expected and on track to win the gold medal in the 20 kilometer walk. And the thing about walk running is you can't run. It's race walking. And one foot has to be on the ground at all times. It's an extraordinarily technical sport. And Jane Seville is 19.75 kilometres into the 20 kilometre walk leading. And she can see the stadium. And she's mulling over in her mind what it's going to be like to go into that stadium to the applause when this man comes out with a red card, and she's DQ'd. A terrible, terrible event. Well, friends, if this is ancient history, let me put it in modern terms. Australia, the Matildas, playing France. Nil all. Penalty time. Penalty. Penalty, 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 penalty. Saving, reaching, getting, and then those last two. 
and the euphoria of Australia going through to play the next game. I mean, Australia was on a high. Our Prime Minister's talking about national holidays. And then the next game. Well, England score first. And then you want some excitement. Sam Kerr brings it, fires an absolute screamer into the back of the net from a long way out. And Australia were on target, right? No. And then the disappointment against Sweden. By the way, the offer of marital counselling is still available. You'll need it, okay. You see, in, in many ways, Israel's history is a little bit like this. I mean, there are highs and there are extraordinary lows. The trajectory is moving forward. There's anticipation of God answering all of the threats to Israel, God putting his ruler in place. There being blessing, great land, the people enjoying the favour of God and things are on an absolute high, it seems, with Solomon. But we saw last week that there was a threat and the threat was the problem of the human heart. And as we read on, we're going to see how this works out. Here are three words. Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. When Andy read for us before, we read the same, well, different three words. And in the end, he thrust them from his presence. To go from Genesis 1 to the end of 2 Kings is a picture of hope and despair. Well, what happens after this time? Is the hope that Israel will be God's people, enjoying God's blessing in a special place, is it still a hope? Well, we're going to have a look at a fair bit of... Uh, territory, a fair bit of a timetable, and we've printed out for you again uh, in your uh, handouts a timeline of the Old Testament. By the way, if you haven't got a handout, there should be some over there on the table. It'll be helpful for you today. And I want to draw attention to this, and uh, you'll, you'll see just a section of it there, and I'll refer to that as we look at different things. What goes on after Solomon is a history of kings. And as you look at these kings, it's really pretty much a history of disaster to the point of the division of God's people in Israel and ultimately their destruction. And I want to show some key points uh, on this timeline for you. The first we can see in 1 Kings chapter 11. So this is while Solomon is on the throne. And in 1 Kings chapter 11, I'll read to you about two people uh, there's a man called Rehoboam, that's the son of Solomon, and another man called Jeroboam, no relation, who's just uh, an important person in Solomon's kingdom. And we're reading here about Jeroboam. Verse 26 of 1 Kings 11, Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, rebelled against the king. He was one of Solomon's officials, an Ephraimite from Zeredah. And then if you come down to verse 29, about that time, Jeroboam was going out of Jerusalem and Ahijah, the prophet of Shiloh, met him on the way wearing a new cloak. The two of them were alone out in the country. 
And Ahijah took hold of the new cloak that he was wearing and he tore it into 12 pieces. And then he said to Jeroboam, take 10 pieces for yourself, for this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, see, I'm going to tear the kingdom out of Solomon's hand and give you 10 tribes. But for the sake of my servant David and the city of Jerusalem, which I've chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, he will have one tribe. And I will do this because they have forsaken me and worshipped Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, Chemos, the god of the Moabites, and Molech, the god of the Ammonites. And they have not walked in obedience to me, nor done what is right in my eyes, nor kept any decrees and laws as David Solomon's father did. This is a key moment. It's an awful moment in the history of Israel. Uh, as you know, Israel is made up of 12 tribes. And in this event, this official in Solomon's kingdom is being told by the prophet that Israel is going to be broken back into its tribes and 10 of them will be led by Jeroboam. Solomon's son, Rehoboam, will lead one of them and that will be called Judah. Well, it's actually one plus one because the Benjaminites end up with Judah as well. And so from this point onwards, there's a division where you've got now two kingdoms. That's why the timeline kind of splits like a coat hanger. You've got the northern tribes, the tribes that are known from now on as Israel, and there's 10 of them. And then you've got the southern tribes that are known as Judah, because one of the tribes is Judah. There's two of them. Judah's capital is Jerusalem, and the king in Jerusalem is to be David's descendant. So you've got these two arms that are going. Now, you need to keep that in mind because we'll see the impact of what follows historically along both of these axes. First of all, you get a situation where you see that there's judgment on both of these separate lines. The judgment, first of all, on Israel, the ten tribes in the north. We can pick it up at the end of 2 Kings, and I'll read to you from 2 Kings uh, chapter 17 and verse 6. In the ninth year of Hoshea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria. Now, Samaria is the area of the ten tribes to the, to the north. So the king of Assyria captures Samaria and deported the Israelites to Assyria. Uh, down in verse 7, all this took place before, because the Israelites had sinned against the Lord their God, who brought them up out of Egypt. They worshipped other gods and followed the practices of the nations that the Lord had driven them out, as well as the practices that the kings of Israel had introduced. Now, that's pretty appalling. So the, the ten tribes to the north... They follow other gods, they follow the practices of other nations, and the kings have been so bad that they've introduced pagan practices that have led the people astray and away from God. And so what is God going to do about this? Well, we see as we read on, uh, down in verse 16, they forsook all the commands of the Lord their God and made for themselves two idols cast in the shape of calves and an Asherah pole. 
And they bowed down to all the starry host, and they worshipped Baal. They sacrificed their sons and daughters in the fire. They practiced divination, and they sought omens and sold themselves to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, thus arousing his anger. Therefore, down in verse 20, the Lord rejected all the people of Israel, he afflicted them, and gave them into the hands of plunderers until he thrust them from his presence. And down in verse 23, so the people of Israel were taken from their homeland into exile in Assyria, and they are still there. Now, we're covering a lot of history, but in these sentences, we see a number of things very clearly. That is, the northern tribes, the ten tribes, they, they get led astray from God, their kings lead them astray from God, the prophets come and speak to them, but they keep straying from God. They end up... Uh, in a syncretistic religion, adopting the religions that are around them to the point where they're even sacrificing their own children. And so God uses the Assyrian nation, which uh, geopolitically had become very, very powerful at that time, to decimate the northern tribes and take the people into captivity. And you'll notice when you look at this timeline, the exile to Assyria, there's a full stop. The northern tribes as a nation cease to exist from this point onwards. They're scattered in the area known as Samaria. Well, let's look then at the southern kingdom, at Judah and what happens there, uh, because their circumstances are a little bit better, uh, but not much better. I mean, the king is there in Jerusalem. Uh, the high point among the kings is when uh, a very young king, um, very, very young, by the name of Josiah. Uh, he goes onto the throne when he's eight years of age. And uh, the various officials uh, in his kingdom go back to the temple and they're searching around in the temple. And you know what they discover? The law of the Lord. Um, they discover their Bible. How are they discovering it? Well, it had been lost. So you can see why things had got bad. And Josiah has the Bible read to him and then starts implementing a whole bunch of reforms and changing the nation. Problem is, though, he's only king for 31 years and then he's replaced and the next guy's no good. So there's a couple of little highlights, but by and large, when you look at the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah, it's men behaving badly. Very badly. That's the story. Well, let's have a look at then what happens to the southern tribes. And this was the passage that was read for us earlier. So from 2 Kings chapter 24. And I'll just read uh, a couple of bits and pieces to try and paint the picture here. So in verse 20, it was because of the Lord's anger that all this happened to Jerusalem and Judah and in the end, he thrust them from his presence. Now, if you have a look at the timeline here, you'll notice that there are two arrows that are going to the left. Uh, if you can't read it clearly, it says the first deportation in 597 BC and the second deportation in 586 BC. From a geopolitical perspective, you've got two major empires around. The Assyrians 
and the Babylonians. The Syrians have done their job on the northern tribes. Now the Babylonians do their job on the southern tribes. And they siege Jerusalem. And they take captive a whole bunch of wise and uh, ruling classes from the, the Judean people from Jerusalem. And they end up besieging the city and the temple, destroying the temple and taking captive all of the incredible wealth and the leadership of Israel. And uh, it's an incredible low point for God's promises. God had promised them a king. Their king is dethroned. He promised them a land. And now the temple and the city are destroyed and they're taken to Babylon. He promised them blessing. And they're now in a foreign land speaking a foreign language. And much of, uh, of this uh, gives rise to books like Jeremiah and Lamentations and so on. Uh, you have a picture here where God's people are in a foreign land, listening to people speaking a foreign language. And again, it seems like God's promises have come to naught. And so Judah goes into captivity away from their land. And if you get to the end of, uh, of 2 Kings chapter 25, this is the final verse. Day by day, the Babylonian king gave Jehoiachin, that is the Israelite ruler, a regular allowance as long as he lived. So you've got the, the king of Judah, now captive in Babylon, getting pocket money from the ruler of the Babylonians. So that all looks pretty bad. But of course, um, this is not a dead end, if you look at the timetable there. Uh, under Zerubbabel, some of them return. Uh, then under Ezra, more return. Then under Nehemiah, more return again. And the last of the historical books of the Old Testament talk about the return. Uh, they speak about the rebuilding of the city, the people making their homes. They speak about a rebuilding of the temple. Uh, and the temple, uh, the second temple, was never quite the standard of the first, Solomon's temple. Um, and when you get to the New Testament, um, Herod is still rebuilding the temple, trying to make it even better. And all, of it's left, all that's left of it now, and it's debated whether it's actually part of the original temple, is what they call the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem. That's all there is. What do we make then? of all of this, of this history. Sadly, it's a, it's a history of decline, of division, and of disaster. Uh, in this geopolitical thing again, you've got the Assyrians and then the Babylonians. What happens then is the rise of the Persians who overthrow the Babylonians and they allow the, the people from Judah to go back to their homeland. And then from Persia, you get the Medes, and they're involved in the last few historical books. And then beyond what the Bible records, you get the Greek Empire and you get the Roman Empire as we enter into the New Testament. So that's all going on uh, from a geopolitical perspective. But it's, it's more than history, what we're dealing with here. And uh, I, I want to show you a little bit of this uh, because... If you look at our English Bibles, Genesis 
through to the end of 2 Kings and then a bit of a recap in 1 and 2 Chronicles and then Ezra, Nehemiah and Esther, they all tell a chronology from the very beginning right through to after the return from exile. Historical books from Genesis through to Esther. But that's only about half the Old Testament. What do we have after that? Well, then you have what you could call the poetic and the wisdom writings. So you get books like Job and Ecclesiastes and, and the Psalms and Song of Solomons and Proverbs and, and so on. And these books don't advance the history of Israel. They are occurring during the history of Israel. They're a little bit like hitting the pause button. So we'll hit pause and then we'll zoom in and look at some reflections. And so it's a bit hard to know where to date Job, but with Psalms, it's easy. Most of them are written by David. With Proverbs, that's easy. Most of them are written by Solomon. Um, and, and you can look at reflections on life, reflections on the word of God, um, reflections on what it's like to be under God's judgment and what it's like to have hope uh, from God's promises. But what you have after the historical stuff is the poetic and the wisdom writings. But you're still only about five-eighths of the way through the Old Testament. Then what you get is the prophets. And uh, you start with Isaiah, and then you finish the Old Testament with Malachi. And what you'll see, if you have a look at your timeline again, is that the prophets come and speak to the people during the history period that we've just been looking at in 1 and 2 Kings, especially. There are prophets at other times, but especially in 1 and 2 Kings. Um, and they're prophets that go to different tribes. So you mightn't realise this, but Elijah, who's pretty well known as a prophet, he goes to the northern tribes where there's King Ahab and Jezebel. Um, after Elijah comes Elisha, neither of those prophets wrote a book in the Bible. But then you get Jonah. He goes to the Assyrians, who are actually the enemy of Israel because they've taken them captive. It's no surprise he doesn't want to go, is it? When you think about who Assyria is. And then Hosea and Amos, they're writing to the northern tribes and they're trying to get the people to turn back to God and they're warning about the judgment that's to come. Down on the southern tribes, Isaiah, he's the big one. He, he writes 66 chapters um, and you get Micah, you get another big one, Jeremiah, and then little one, Obadiah. And you can read as the people are in captivity, the writings of Ezekiel and Daniel uh, are speaking to the captives and also to those who are left back in Jerusalem and in the Judean area. But it doesn't advance the history it's the voice of God speaking into the historical circumstances. So I hope this gives you a little bit of a, like part of the aim of this series is to help us kind of have a map for the Bible. So what we've got with the Old Testament, writings, sorry, we've got the history, then the writings, and then the prophecy. Now what I want to do is take a look at what happens through the prophets at the time when Israel looks to be at its most desperate point ever. And that is, what does God do through the prophets 
as Judah is facing the Assyrian invasion, as they're taken captive into Babylon, and then as they return uh, from Babylon. What's God saying? And of course, as you look at the words of the prophets, you can see that God has brought a message of judgment. Uh, we get the details of some of the judgment and the meaning of the judgment, but it's not without hope. And the most extraordinarily hopeful passages in the Old Testament you find in some of these prophetic writings during and around the exile. I'll just give you a taste of it, right? We're going to look at a few. So here from Isaiah. Isaiah, um, you know these words, we read them at Christmas. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. And the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. You see, the promises that God made to David, he hasn't forgotten them. Even though the nation are now captive in Babylon, the promise remains that God will have a Davidic king ruling over his kingdom for eternity. And that's the promise. Not only does uh, Isaiah feature this Davidic king, but it also features one called a servant. And so in uh, Isaiah 53, the verse that goes before the bar, bar, do bar, bar. Sorry, the, um, I can't even remember what it says now. It's like baby shark. You never get it out of your brain from in. Um, here are the words that go before. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him to be stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him and by his wounds we are healed. Sins, transgressions, iniquities, they're all ways of speaking of our rebellion against God. And what we're told is that God will send a servant who will pay the price for all of that. You know, the extraordinary thing is, and I don't think the people of Israel realised this, even at the time of Jesus, that the Davidic king and the suffering servant were to be one and the same person. Jesus, the servant king. We, we read on in, into Jeremiah, and when all hope of the covenants that God has been making seem to be scrapped, um, God affirms, the time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And you see, you've got both sides, the, the, the southern tribes and the northern tribes. I'll make a new covenant with them both. It will not be like the covenant that I made with their forefathers, when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. See, this, this new covenant is going to be a, a different nature of covenant because it won't be dependent on human performance. God is going to solve the problem that keeps breaking the covenant, and that is solve the problem of sin. He's going to deal with sin. 
And he's going to do that in the suffering servant who is Jesus. And to read on then in, in um, Jeremiah, this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbour or a man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. If you want to know God, if you want to have intimacy with God, if you want to have a relationship, be connected with God, this is essential, knowing that God will forgive your sins and remember your wickedness no more. That's what kept people from God. That's what led to God thrusting them from his presence. But when he deals with sin, he welcomes people in forever. Or from the prophet Ezekiel, um, you might be familiar with these two wonderful chapters. And for those who've been following through the Bible in 70, you've read some great stuff, I know, over the last couple of weeks. For I will take you out of the nations and I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. And I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all of your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. See, God's promises, even at Israel's lowest, are that he will transform them. Not just a political, a national transformation, but a spiritual renewal. And God will deal with people and he will work in people by his spirit. And then in the next chapter, Ezekiel 37, those bones, them, those bones, them dry bones passage. Uh, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I will take the Israelites out of the nations where they've gone. I will gather them from all around and bring them back into their own land. I'll make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel. There will be one king over them all and they will never again be two nations or be divided into two kingdoms. And then one more reading from the book of Daniel, uh, chapter 7. We looked at Daniel a little while back. And uh, we also kept seeing this image of the Son of Man as we looked through Matthew's Gospel. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. And he was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. And all peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So what I, I want you to just get a, a, a taste for the fact that at, at Israel and Judah's lowest points, God continues to affirm his promises and he says, I'm not done with you yet. The promise still stands. In fact, it's going to be deeper and more significant than you ever appreciated. Even though you've rebelled against me, I'm going to gather you back. I'm going to forgive your sin and I'm going to put my king in place to rule over you for all eternity. Well, friends, they're some of the, the best of the prophets. They're some of the highlights from the time of the exile. This is Israel's darkest hour and yet God bringing his greatest hope to the people. So what do we do with this? Um, uh, this is the last of our 
stopovers before we get to the New Testament. What do we do with the Old Testament? I mean, the next week we're going to be looking at, at Jesus' life and then his death and then his resurrection and then his return to heaven. What, what, do we, what do we make of the Old Testament, though, today? Well, I want to give you three suggestions. First of all, the Old Testament is all about anticipation. Um, it's, it's all about looking to the future. It, it's a word, the Old Testament is a word about Jesus. The Old Testament is a Christian book. Yes, it's a Jewish book, but it's fundamentally only understood properly when you see that it's a Christian book. So Jesus, after his resurrection, he's on the road to Emmaus and he says to these men, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms. In other words, I think what Jesus is saying is, you want to understand that Old Testament, what you call your Bible? It's all about me. That's what it's about. You'll never understand it unless you understand me. It was written about me, and I'm going to show you what it meant. And then he opened their minds so that they could understand the Scriptures. And he told them, this is what was written, that Christ will suffer and rise from the dead, and on the third day... And, and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. You see, if we only have the Old Testament, then we've got an, an imperfect, incomplete work. The, the Jewish Bible, if you like, just the Old Testament, is, is incomplete. It's, it's like having that jigsaw puzzle with 5,000 pieces and one of them's not there. And the one that's not there is the one that makes sense of the whole picture. It's like watching that miniseries that goes, well, I did watch a miniseries once. It was called Newsroom. And I didn't get to see the last two episodes until about five years later when I was staying at a friend's house. And I watched them. And it made sense of the first episode and everything in between. Friends, that's what the New Testament is. That's what Jesus is. He makes sense of the old. So anticipation. Ask, as you look at the Old Testament, how does this help me to get ready to know Jesus? Let me give you an, another passage on this in 2 Timothy chapter 3. And uh, Paul is speaking to Timothy and he, he's reminded him that he, he learnt about God from his mother and grandmother. And then he says, you have known the Holy Scriptures... Now, remember, at this time, knowing the Holy Scriptures was knowing what we call the Old Testament because the New Testament hadn't yet been put together. So you've known the old Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So what can the Old Testament do? First of all, it can, it can make you wise to put your trust in Jesus. That's what it's about. And... There are many who have come to know Jesus. And some have actually said that when they have heard Isaiah 52 and 53, they've actually thought that someone smuggled the New Testament into the Old. But it's pointing towards Jesus. Written 800 years before, pointing towards Jesus. And it goes on, all scripture is God-breathed. It's actually God's word, the Old Testament. We don't throw it away. Jesus said, I've not come to get rid of it, but to fulfill it to make it complete and whole. It's God-breathed, God-spirited. 
And it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. See, God's word, even in the Old Testament, points us to Jesus and equips us to live as God's people. One more thing. Once we understand how the Old Testament points to Jesus, how it's fulfilled in Jesus and how it's complete in Jesus, that gives us encouragement to hope. Have a look at this verse from Romans 15, verse 4. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through endurance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. What's the Old Testament about? It's actually there to teach us so that we will push on and keep on, so that we'll endure, we'll persevere, and we'll do that encouraged by God himself, because he's the faithful God. And I hope that one of the things that you will come to appreciate more, just in this very brief overview, is that God can be trusted. He keeps making promises, and despite all the circumstances leading to to test that and and to make it look like God is out of control or the people have just made everything impossible from now on and God can't possibly keep his promises, he does. And, And in Jesus, we see that every promise that God has made finds its amen, its yes. And I tell you, as as I look at life and, and I see circumstances being good sometimes and circumstances being horrific at other times, the one place that I can turn is to the Bible where it reminds me that God has kept his promises in Jesus. And if he's kept them in Jesus, he'll keep them to me and to you. And you can trust God and you can know that you can trust God because he has demonstrated that he is a faithful God. Well, I want to finish off with uh, just a little illustration of this. I I started with a couple of um, stories from the Summer Olympics. Maybe we'll finish with a story from the Winter Olympics. Um, Here you have it. Anyone know this guy? Uh, It's a bit folkloric in Australia, isn't it? The Stephen Bradbury story. What is it? It it looks like a story of luck. It, It looks like one guy just stayed upright and all the better skaters fell over and he won the gold medal in the Winter Olympics. It, it looks like a story of luck. But if you know the story, you'll know it's anything but. It's actually an extraordinary story of perseverance. Yes, Stephen Bradbury won gold at the 2002 Winter Olympics. It was the first time an Australian had won gold at the Winter Olympics you might not realise that it was his fourth Olympic Games representing Australia. Back in 1994, he had won the first ever Winter Olympic medal for Australia. It was a bronze. But in 1994, he had a, a tragic accident where while skating, his quad was sliced by another skate requiring 111 stitches 
having lost four litres of blood. And you may not realise as well that in September 2000, two years before he won gold, that he broke his neck in a training accident. There were many, many setbacks and disappointments for Stephen Bradbury. In the semi-final, prior to this final, three skaters went down and he made it through to the grand final, to the medal round. And then, of course, uh, when four skaters who were competing for that gold medal clashed with each other and went crashing out, he had just stayed behind them and stayed safe and made it through to win that impressive gold medal. It wasn't luck. It was grit and determination. It was perseverance in hope that one day he'd win a gold medal. Now, I don't really want to finish with an Olympic story to hype you up. I really want to finish with the fact that despite all of the history of Israel, God sends Jesus and Jesus nails it. Quite literally, he's nailed on a cross and he's raised from the dead that gives us a sure and certain hope for all eternity. And that's what the next four weeks are going to be about. Don't miss them. Come from far and wide. Come from Alstonville. Come from Sydney. Come from Texas. Come from Bonnie Hills. Come and hear the wonderful story. Actually, if you miss it, you can catch it on our website. Thank you.